We are wrapping up our series uh, this morning about the life of Abraham. So if you have Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to the book of Genesis, chapter 25. There are a, a series of smaller books within the book of Genesis. They all begin with this phrase, these are the generations of. So if you remember from mid-May, when we started this series, we began in Genesis eleven twenty-seven, where it started with, these are the generations of Terah, that's Abraham's father, that carries all the way through Genesis 25, verse 11, where we close today. After that, it goes on with uh, subsequent generations of, uh, of this family. As we read this morning uh, about, really, Abraham's final days and his death, I'm going to talk about legacy. And, and many of you, I know, have been uh, in churches for a number of years, some of you for your entire lives. And so perhaps you've heard uh, sermons about legacy. Maybe you've heard a lot of sermons about legacy before. Just to put your minds at ease this morning, uh, I'm not talking about money. Uh, so somewhere along the way, colleges and churches kind of, uh, you know, collaborated and, and like legacy became a code word for giving a lot of your money uh, to the institution. Uh, I'm as guilty of that as anyone. I used to work in donor development for a nonprofit, so I use the word legacy in that way uh, a lot too. Um, but maybe you're like me if you've been in the church for a while. Most of the, the content, whether it's sermons or, or articles or, or just the topic of legacy, when you, when you interact with that in a church setting, it, it usually builds to a crescendo where the main question is, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want your legacy to be? And the hope is that in, in considering that, that we will commit ourselves to pursue a legacy that's truly worthwhile, things that matter and, and things that last. That's important. Uh, and, and I fully believe that we as Christians need to be called to, to pursue that kind of legacy. Uh, actually, when we study the book of James in early 2018, James is going to write about how our lives are a mist, that, that we're here today and gone tomorrow. So it's essential to consider as Christians the brevity of our lives and what we do with those precious moments that we do have and the impact that our lives have on the world and on future generations. But today... Based on Genesis 25, I'm going to take a different approach uh, to the topic of legacy. And rather than ask you what you want your legacy to be, I'm going to presume to tell you, at least in general terms, what your legacy will be. And here it is. Your life, your legacy, is that you will contribute to the flourishing of the world and the flourishing of future generations. And through your very same life, that you will contribute to the ongoing brokenness and the ongoing fracture of people and of the world around you. So when your life comes to an end, when my life comes to an end, you will have impacted the world both positively and negatively. Just like, just like death, this is an inevitable part of humanity. Even for, for the most godly and the most faith-filled men and women that have ever set foot on this earth, this is part of what it means to be human. Their lives, like our lives, are lives that combine really the, the beautiful fruit of our faithfulness and the ugly fallout of our failures. If this is the, the first time you've ever considered this, I know it sounds incredibly discouraging. And now you also know why they never let me write much content in the donor development world back, back in the day. But hang in there. Because what we're going to see, my hope at least is what you see this morning in Scripture through this text, is that far from hopelessness or apathy or a meaningless outlook on life, the reality that this will be our legacy gives even more meaning to our lives and really fuels even more hope. Why? 
because it drives us to, in faith, root ourselves that much deeper in the life and the work of God. So as we've come to the end of the life of Abraham, I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 25, I'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashurim, Latushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and to obey what you say. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So culturally, much of what we think about when we think about legacy are things that require zero faith. It basically boils down to some good long-term planning, some hard work, and some perseverance. You plan the work and work the plan, as kind of the old adage goes. And again, there's a really important place for all of those things. God does use means. But Abraham's, as we've seen, is a life and is a legacy of faith. And this legacy of faith, Abraham's, and in turn ours as the people of God, is characterized by at least three things. So the legacy of faith is, number one, a legacy of both realized and unrealized fulfillment, Number two, a legacy of both honor and dishonor. And number three, the legacy of faith is also the legacy of grace. And we'll talk about each of those three things for the rest of our time this morning. So first, the legacy of faith is a legacy of realized and unrealized fulfillment. As Genesis 25 says, Abraham dies when he's 175 years old. And if you've been with us in the series, if you are with us all the way back in May when we started it, years earlier, God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation, that he would have innumerable descendants, and that through him and through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Of those huge promises that that, that show up in Genesis chapter 12, here's what Abraham lives to see. He lives to see the sign of the covenant, this physical, tangible sign of circumcision that sets him and his descendants apart as the people of God. He lives to see his son Isaac born, And as you've seen, as we've seen, he had to wait a really long time for that. Time and again, he and Sarah attempted to procure for themselves an heir for their family. And time and time again, God said, no, that's not my way. But Abraham lives long enough to see a son born from his own body. He also lives long enough to see his grandsons, Jacob and Esau, born. And this brings up a really important point when we read the book of Genesis. The text of Genesis is not always in chronological order. 
So just like authors, just like historians do in, in modern literature, sometimes events are, raised, uh, are, are uh, arranged thematically or topically, and they weave in and out chronologically. So for example here, though the order of the text makes it seem like Sarah remarried Keturah after Sarah died, in reality, Abraham probably married her while she was still alive, while Sarah was still living. It's just because Keturah and these children aren't central to the main point of Genesis, what the author is really trying to convey in Genesis, that they aren't mentioned until now, almost as kind of a side note. Likewise, if you piece together Genesis 23, 24, and 25, we find out that, it's when, that when Isaac is 40 years old, that's when he marries Rebekah. And 20 years later, when Isaac is 60, that's when they have Jacob and Esau. So even though the narrative of their birth comes after the narrative of Abraham's death, Abraham actually lives to see his son Isaac reach the age of 75 and his grandsons reach the age of about 15. Abraham also lives to see, as verse 8 says, good old age. That was one of the smaller but really significant promises God made him as well throughout his life, that he would live to see good old age. Back in Genesis 15, that's what God said to him. And dying here at the age of 175 means he lives fully 100 years in the land of Canaan, in this land of promise. He lived a good long life, and really from everything that we can tell, apart from Sarah's death, these last 50 years or so of his life are largely uneventful and calm compared to the turbulence of the years prior to that. Lastly, he lives to see, as we read last week, ownership of this small plot of, pro of the promised land. Uh, and that's where, as this text says, his bones go into the ground next to his wife's bones when he dies. It's a tiny fraction of the promised land, but he does possess some of it when he dies. On the other hand, centuries later, the author of Hebrews is reflecting on Abraham's life. And as the author of Hebrews puts it, Abraham dies not having received the things promised, but seeing them and greeting them from afar. So here's what Abraham doesn't live to see. He doesn't live to see his people become a great nation. He doesn't live to see his descendants outnumber the stars in the sky or the dust on the earth or the sand on the seashore, all analogies that God used. When he dies, he has a handful of descendants, and it's a group that is ever-growing, but it will be generations more, including centuries of slavery in Egypt, before Abraham's descendants ever resemble something that could be called a great nation. Nor does Abraham live to see his people possess the land. Apart from this burial plot, at the time of his death, the, Abraham's family, they are a sojourning, wandering people in a land that is not their own. And nor does he live to see, at least with any kind of specificity, how his people will become God's means of blessing all of the nations of the earth. So we see in Abraham that the legacy of faith is a legacy of both realized and unrealized fulfillment. And if that's true for Abraham, the one who is really held up in Scripture as the epitome of a life of faith, then we should expect the very same thing as the people of God in this time and place. So as Christians, we live our lives based on the promises of God. And on the cosmic scale, that promise is that God is through Christ reconciling the world to himself. On the personal scale, it's that for each of us who belong to him, who have trusted the finished work of Jesus for us, that he is working together all things for our good. 
And what we know from, from Abraham's example and the example of Christian sins is that we will see some of that realized during our lives, and we will see some of that unrealized during our lives. How much for us and how much in this generation versus other generations varies greatly. And so what that means then for us is that ultimately, our ability to dictate and control our legacy is unbelievably limited. Can we just acknowledge that together this morning? Our ability to control and dictate our legacy is unbelievably limited. And on the cosmic scale, that might be fairly obvious. You know, God's, uh, what we do in this life is not going to slow or, or quicken God's purposes in the world and advance those. And so there are eras in history that are largely characterized by revival, and there are other eras in history largely characterized by apostasy, where it seems like God isn't even present or doing anything. On a personal scale, though, and I think this is where a lot of the conversation about legacy, even among Christians, can get muddled, can be less obvious. We are given a very active role to play. That's why it's important to talk about our legacy. It's just that even on the personal scale, our ability to dictate and control our legacy is so unbelievably limited. I know I mentioned, I said I wouldn't talk about money, but just as a concrete example of this. You can work hard your whole life. You can sacrifice your whole life. You can save and not indulge financially your whole life. Pass along an inheritance to your kids that should take care of them forever, and they can burn through it in a matter of months or years. And that's not just theory. That happens, at least in this country, every single day. Two years ago, Time Magazine published an article citing research that 70% of wealthy families, and I think they defined wealth as like a net worth of more than $3 million. I think that's the, the figure they used. 70% um, of wealthy families lose their wealth by the second generation. 90% of them lose it by the third. Independent of the financial piece of that, most of us in this room would say that we want to use our lives to make a difference for the kingdom of God. We want to we use our lives to contribute in, in, in ways that matter to things that last. And in that good desire, in that good pursuit, we will see some of that realized in our life and we will see some of that unrealized. A couple years ago, uh, I read a great biography about a man named David Livingston. Anybody familiar with David Livingston? Not a lot, that's okay. Um, He's a doctor. He was a doctor, a missionary, and an abolitionist who spent most of his life in East Africa, uh, mainly in the nation of Zanzibar. He ultimately died there in Zanzibar. Uh, and his life, his story is really a great illustration that, that our legacy is one that is both uh, realized and unrealized fulfillment. In the author's note at the beginning of the book, Jay Milbrandt summarizes Livingston's life this way. He says this, Livingston would never see his legacy a mere 36 days after passing away, legislation in Zanzibar would make slavery illegal in East Africa. He passed away believing he had failed in almost everything in life. For abolition, he sacrificed his career, his reputation, his fortune, his wife, his children, and eventually his own life. Livingston's story is one of failure and falling from grace, but it is also a story of relentless commitment that brings redemption we may never know and a story greater than we could ever imagine. So realized and unrealized fulfillment. This is part of Abraham's legacy, part of the legacy of faith. Now Livingston's life, and maybe you heard this as I read that quote, is also a good illustration that raises important questions about our second point this morning, and that is that the legacy of faith is a legacy of both honor and dishonor. It's incredibly honorable 
that Livingston gave so much for his commitment to abolition, that he gave his career, uh, his reputation, his fortune, even his own life. And it's incredibly honorable what all of that accomplished. But what about his wife and what about his children? Is that, is that honorable? Is that an acceptable cost to pay? And perhaps now we look back on that, that that happened a couple hundred years ago, and we say, yeah, I guess now we could look. I guess, I guess that's honorable. I guess that was good in the grand scheme of things. But I bet if you were able to go back and ask his wife and his children in those moments, you might get a different story from them. Or flip it around. What about the person who gives everything to protect their spouse and their children, who is so committed to their family, but who lives their entire life callous to the suffering of others? Or indifferent to kingdom of God causes for justice and mercy? Or, or without ever demonstrating costly love to show and tell the good news of Jesus to people who don't yet know him. Is that honorable or is that dishonorable? Some of the best-known heroes of faith, uh, distant past to, to recent past, are those with legacies that are filled with both honor and dishonor. And in case you've ever only heard or considered the honorable part, let me ruin a few heroes for you this morning. Martin Luther hero of, of the Protestant Reformation, hated Jews. And when I say hated, I mean he hated, he hated Jews. And the legacy of that, not that I would put the fault on him for this squarely, but the legacy of that can be traced actually all the way to Hitler and how future iterations of, of the German Lutheran church, which was begun under his leadership, was complicit in sanctioning the rise of Arianism and Nazism and the Final Solution. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, uh, led in England as well as in the United States. Great revival, uh, led the church to pursue holiness. You live in central Pennsylvania, so every five feet you drive, you see a Methodist church. That's John Wesley's legacy. On the other hand, John Wesley was an absent husband and an absent father. Whether he, he committed adultery is unknown. What is known is that he carried on affectionate relationships with women who weren't his wife that clearly crossed what would have been appropriate boundaries. And he purposefully, we know this from even some of his correspondence, stayed away from home as much as possible because he did not want to be near his wife. A.W. Tozer, more recent uh, church figure in the church. He was an author and pastor last century. And he wrote books like The Pursuit of God and Knowledge of the Holy, books that I've found incredibly helpful uh, in my own life. After he passed away in 1963, his wife Ada remarried a man named Leonard Odom. And some years after that, she was asked by someone what it was like to be married to another man after having been married to A.W. Tozer, this, this giant of the Christian faith for so many years. And, to, and in response to being asked about that, here's what she said. She said, I've never been happier in my life. A.W. loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard loves me. I mean, I heard that the first time. I was like, oh my gosh, that's, may that never be said of, of me or other, or other people in my shoes, except that it is said about people like us all the time. And as tragic as these examples are, they, they really should surprise none of us for two reasons. One, because beginning with Abraham, ever since God established a people for himself, they leave a legacy that is both honorable and dishonorable. And number two, because it's the very same legacy that you and I are in the process of leaving right now. So think about Abraham's legacy. It, it is one of both honor and dishonor. Honorably, 
He buys a field in which to bury his wife and himself. Honorably, he sets this precedent of the life of faith. And so like him, his descendants after him trust God when there's great cost involved. In his life, he, he leaves his homeland. He goes after his nephew to rescue him. He intercedes for the life of the world, even a place as wicked as Sodom. And he displays the tested genuineness of his faith by coming within moments of sacrificing his only son. Honorably, as it says here then in verse 5, although he loved all his children and gave gifts to provide for them, something he was not obligated to do in the ancient Near East, he gave everything else he owned to Isaac. And more than anything else, that is a statement of his trust in God, that Isaac is the son of promise. And so he sends his other children eastward to another land so that Isaac, the son of promise, might live in the promised land. But dishonorably, Abraham's multiple wives and his children by them create a ton of disharmony and a ton of enmity between half-brothers. Isaac and Ishmael, that's the big one. And though we see them here come together to bury their father, they live for the rest of their lives at odds with one another. And our world, as you probably well know, still feels the ripple effects of that legacy to this day. Historically speaking, this is the dividing point of the major religions of the world. The hatred and enmity that's existed for centuries between Jews and Muslims, between Christians and Muslims, even between Christians and Jews. Isaac and Ishmael is the big one. It isn't the only example of this enmity. And buried in this list of names that I can't pronounce very well, of Abraham's sons, is Midian. That's the same Midian that rises up some years later to oppress Israel during the period of the judges. So if you're familiar with the story of Gideon, it's this Midian that God must deliver his people from. These oppressors of Israel, the people of Midian, they trace their ancestral lineage back to Abraham too not just Isaac, not just Israel. Dishonorably, Abraham also establishes a legacy of lying and deceit for the sake of your own benefit. So when Isaac pretends that his wife, Rebekah, is his sister in the very next chapter of Genesis, we read that and we say, well, that's exactly what his dad did to his mom, and he did it twice. And then when Jacob deceives Esau, his brother, and deceives Isaac, his father, in order to secure the birthright of the firstborn for himself... We as the reader just say, well, I guess that's just what it means to be part of this family. Exactly. Exactly. This is part of what it means to be in this family all the way to the present day. And the more that we pretend that this isn't reality for the people of God, the more that we pretend this isn't true in some way for you and I, the more we deny the real legacy of faith. So can I talk for just a moment about funerals? Most funerals are dishonest. Or at a minimum, at, a, at their best, they are incomplete. When you attend the funeral of someone that you know well, this is why it can be a really conflicted experience. Because the, the vast majority of the time, nothing negative is ever said about a person at their funeral. It's only the positive parts of that person's legacy that are highlighted. And that, that makes sense. I'm not advocating that funerals become the airing of the dirty laundry, or like an attempt to shame or dishonor someone posthumously. Uh, the purpose of a funeral is to honor a person's life. Uh, it's to honor God's work in and through that person. It's to grieve at the loss of someone that you love. It's just that even for those people that you love most, and with whom you have the best of relationships, the reality is, is that his or her life was not 100% 
praiseworthy, honorable, positive things. And sometimes it's blatantly dishonorable things, huge blights on that person's life and character. And when you've been affected by those things, which many of you have experienced this, when you've been affected by these things, you attend that person's funeral, it will be such a disorienting, disequilibriating experience because you're trying to reconcile all of these positive and good words spoken about someone who you experienced at least some of the time in miserable ways. And so you can find yourself sitting there saying, I do love this person and there was much good in their life. At the same time, he was a womanizer who tore our family apart. Uh, She was manipulative and injected a lot of self-loathing and a lot of shame into my life. He was relationally lazy and neglected his kids, neglected his family. He or she abused me. So church, may we be more honest about the legacy of people when they die. And actually, may that free us to be more honest and have more honest conversations about our own legacy while we yet live. Many of you will remember that about 18 months ago, one of the members of our church here, Joy Walker, was killed in a car accident. Joy's funeral, at least from my vantage point, was the most honest funeral I have ever been to, uh, let alone been a part of. Her life was messy. There was just no way around that. And there, were, there, there are aspects of her life and her legacy that, that are going to be damaging, that are already and will be damaging. At the same time, she left an honorable legacy. And aspects of her life and who she was continue to make an impact on many of you, continue to make an impact on me, even specifically, her lack of pretense and her brilliance in calling out pretense when she saw it in others. And in that sense, her funeral was, really became the, the perfect illustration about one thing that was so honorable about her life. And so perhaps by God's work, part of Joy's ongoing legacy here among us will be that God uses that to continue to form us into a community where we can have these kinds of honest conversations about both what is honorable and dishonorable in our own lives. So Christians, during your lifetime, you will both, let's just call, let's just call this out this morning and get this on the table, you will both honor and dishonor the name of Jesus. Men and women, you will in some ways love well, and in some ways you will hurt and wound those you call friends. Husbands and wives, in some ways you will love well, and in some ways you will hurt and wound your spouse. Parents, in some ways you will love well. In others, either by your omission or by your commission, you will hurt and wound your kids. And here's the thing. The more that you vow that you won't, the more that you pretend that you won't, it becomes that much more certain that you will. Because you'll be so desperate trying to avoid giving the same kinds of wounds that you've received that you'll just wound in the opposite direction. If your life was too structured and too controlled, then you'll likely not give enough healthy kinds of boundaries and protective boundaries to your own kids. If you felt like you never had approval from your parents or other adult figures in your life, you will likely approve your own kid to a fault and not challenge their actions, not call out their actions, their thoughts, their motivations in the ways that you need to. The more that you and I vow never to do what another person did to me, the more certain it is we'll wound that person in another direction. Now, I recognize that, that the words, that these words uh, are, are heavy this morning, especially if this is something that you've never given much consideration to. 
And in fact, let's go all the way here. To honestly think about the dishonorable, damaging parts of our own legacies. And to think about the, 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 the unrealized fulfillment that we'll experience in our life. That will crush us. That will crush us. Except that the story of Abraham doesn't end in verse 10 of Genesis 25. It ends in verse 11. That after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. So giant of the faith that he is, Abraham doesn't get the final word on his own life. He doesn't get the final word on his own legacy, and nor do you and I. God does. This is, this is God's story, and God has the right to narrate the story. And therefore, through all of the good, and in spite of all of the evil, it says at the end of Abraham's life, after he's dead, God blesses Isaac. So God continues to, and this will be the case for us too, after we are gone, God will continue to be present with the next generation. His work will continue on, and that will happen both through us and in spite of us. See, though it is a legacy of both realized and unrealized fulfillment, and though it's a legacy of both honor and dishonor, the most important part of the legacy of faith is that it is also the legacy of grace. And this is what makes legacy for God's people different than the way other people think about legacy. Right? Regardless of faith, religion, or creed, everyone has hopes that are realized and hopes that are unrealized. Everyone has parts of their life that are honorable and dishonorable. Faith in the God who created us who sustains us, who is redeeming the world through Jesus, that faith locates your life both while you are living and long after you are dead in the eternal promises and the eternal work of God. Isaac settles in this place called Beer Lahai Roy. And if you'll recall from a few weeks back, that place was named not by Abraham, not by Sarah, but by Hagar. It's after Hagar is mistreated by Sarah and sent away while she's pregnant with Ishmael. God finds her by the spring of water in the wilderness. And God assures her in that moment, I see you, and I care, and I'm with you. That's why this place gets its name. Bir Lahai Roy means the well of the living one who sees me. So think about that. That whole episode was the result of Abraham and Sarah's faithlessness. They didn't trust God to provide them a son. They took matters into their own hands. When that backfired, Sarah mistreated Hagar, and Abraham stood passively by and let it all happen. But God gets the last word. So God is going to bless Isaac. And not only that, he's going to bless Isaac in the very place that got its name as a result of one of the most dishonorable moments of Abraham's life. This is God's story to narrate. And so the ultimate legacy of Abraham is that from his descendants will come one perfect descendant through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The ultimate legacy of Abraham is that his life and his descendants will point the way forward to Jesus Christ. And all of those who share in Abraham's faith through Jesus are welcomed not only into Abraham's family, but into the very family of God. Friends, this is grace. This is grace that in our hypocrisy, in our glaring contradictions, in the dishonorable parts of our legacies, you and I cannot hinder the work of God. That he always has, that he always will use incredibly flawed people. And that he will pour out his grace on you 
to forgive you, to love you through those dishonorable parts of your life, he will also pour out his grace through you, and he will pour out his grace in spite of you. The legacy of faith is that we are people in whom and through whom and in spite of whom the grace of God is at work. And that is truly what gives significance and meaning to every aspect of our life. In those honorable parts, in those parts we're proud to pass along, rather than boasting pridefully in what we've accomplished, it honors the grace of God that is at work through us. And then in the dishonorable parts, the parts we wish we didn't pass along, but we will even though we don't want to, and our regrets and those dark parts of our past and present, rather than being crushed by how you failed, this honors the grace of God at work in spite of you. So recognize that your legacy will be all of these things. And if I can leave you with one thing, it's this. Rather than becoming preoccupied with the specifics of the kind of legacy you will leave, become preoccupied with the God who has the last word. Become preoccupied with the Christ who has purchased for his people a legacy of grace. Recognize the limitedness of your ability to dictate the specifics of your own life and even less ability to dictate the specifics of your own legacy. And take that limitedness, take that dependence to Jesus himself. That is the point of the life of faith, that by the grace of God, we are his and he is ours and his grace is at work in us and through us, and in spite of us. Amen. Let me pray. Jesus, you are a great God, and your way is so counterintuitive to the way that we structure our lives. We confess this morning, God, that we are those who will contribute honorable things, but also dishonorable. And we confess, God, that as much as we see realized in our life, we will get hung up and discouraged about what we see unrealized. And so we are grateful to you, Jesus, that what you have purchased for us, that, that faith, the legacy of faith, is the legacy of grace. And that we are caught up into the eternal promises and the eternal work that you have been accomplishing since before the foundations of the world. Jesus, may we be those who are diligent in our lives and in the brief moments we've been given. But in the things that are honorable, may we rejoice in that it is your grace that is at work. And in the dishonorable, may we likewise rejoice that your grace overcomes our sin and continues to advance your purposes. Do that even more. May we see as much as you would be kind enough to show us in this life. May we trust you whether we see it or not. And for all these things, in the name of Christ. Amen.